1: Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. In Isaiah fifty three eleven, Isaiah fifty three eleven, he shall see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. This is the yada knowledge that he has by feeling is what is meant when it says how Jesus Christ has experienced the feeling of our griefs, the feeling of our sorrows, the feeling of our weaknesses. In Hebrews 4.15, Hebrews 4.15, it talks about him being touched with these feelings. Hebrews 4.15, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin, our infirmities came to him with one big open yada hand, and it touched Jesus Christ, and that's what makes him an approachable high priest. We have a high priest in Jesus Christ who is approachable because he has felt with an open hand the feelings of our weaknesses and our temptations He understands, he understands because he's been touched with the open hand of our sorrows. This has made Jesus Christ both an understanding and an approachable high priest. Not like the priest that Cheryl and I encountered one cold winter day when we were in London's Westminster Abbey. It was so cold, it was cold outside. There is a coldness in, in England that uh, I think they have. A, they have they, they've got the corner on the coldness for the world. They can, it can be so cold there. They have such piercing coldness. I remember one time I was with some uh, business people there and walked outside and it was sunny. And he looked up and says, Oh, this is beautiful. Just like it is in England, three days out of the year. <laughs> he said, Three days out. It's cold. Anyway, it was cold inside Westminster Abbey that day, cold outside. And Cheryl was shivering and, and said to the priest who came by, it's so cold in here, she said. And the priest said, my dear, when you are filled with the love of God, you don't feel cold. <laughs> that was not an understandable and approachable priest. <laughs> but Jesus Christ is not like that. He's understandable, he's understanding, and he is approachable, a high priest, because in Hebrews 4.15, as we saw, he's been touched with an open hand with the feeling of our infirmities. So all this is to show what God wants us to see in verses one and two, that God has such strong feeling here in these verses that three times in these two verses, God cries out with a call, here, here, and twice, God uses the word controversy. There is a controversy. He's describing his passion. God twice is pleading. In verse 1, he has the word contend, which means plead. In Micah 6.2, Micah 6.2, he will plead with Israel. God is so frustrated that Israel is not hearing his passionate cry, that he turns now, God turns now in absolute frustration to mountains, to hills. And he says in verse 1, in verse 1, contend thou before the mountains and let thy hills hear thy voice. And just when we see God turn to call to the mountains, the hills to hear his cry, it reminds me one time when I was so frustrated about how the Jewish people were not hearing me when I brought the gospel to them. And and one day I was just out in my little 14-foot aluminum boat, all alone alone out there in the the middle of the sea of Cortez, well, not that far out, but I felt I was in the middle of the sea, but anyway, in front of Loretto there. And I was out there feeling nobody's listening. And I looked out and all of a sudden there were two pelicans that came right up the side of the boat. And they were sitting in the water right next to my little boat, these two pelicans. And at first I started, and I just started to talk to the two pelicans, you know. And I pretended they were people. (laughs) And I preached the gospel to them, those two pelicans. And they didn't fly away. They were just so happy about that. And afterward, I thanked them for listening and for not flying away. And this is God's controversy. He's so frustrated with Israel that he's pleading with Israel. It's so personal with him that he turns to the mountains. And he says in verse 1, it doesn't end with, "Let the hills hear thy voice," but worth ends with, "Let the hills hear thy voice." It doesn't say it doesn't say, "Let them hear thy words," I meant to say. He doesn't say, "Let them hear thy words." He says, "Let them hear thy voice." There's a difference, because it's the voice of God that's heard in the words. The voice of God is heard in the word, which means that the words are so closely associated with the person of God. A voice is like a fingerprint, it's like a fingerprint. A voice is unique to a person. We recognize people by their voices, which is what John four is all about. When Jesus talked about his voice, he was talking about the fingerprint, the recognition of his voice when he said in John 10, John 10:3, he said, to him the porter openeth and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name and leadeth them out. John 10.4, John 10.4 says, when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. They know his voice. John 10.3, they hear his voice. John 10.4, they know his voice. John 10.5, John 10.5, a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. John ten sixteen. John ten sixteen. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. They shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. You know what the one fold and one shepherd. All the sheep the Mongolian sheep and the Tanzanian sheep and the Eskimo sheep, along with the Jewish sheep, they're all gonna get together and they're gonna say, you know what we share in common? We know the voice. We know the voice of Jesus Christ. And that makes us brothers, we know the voice. Because he said the all-important principle about a person who is in Christ is John ten twenty-seven. John ten twenty-seven. my sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. It's just like when we hear a familiar voice, we say, we say uh, maybe someone calls us the phone, or is it distant, is that you, John? I know it's you, John, I recognize your voice. I recognize your voice. So, that's just like when we read the Bible, and we read a verse, and it becomes alive to us, and when that happens, we say, is that you, Jesus? I know it's you, Jesus. I recognize your voice. So here, God is so full of passion about his controversy with Israel that God, as we said, he turned to the mountains, just like turning to pelicans, and he commands the mountains to hear, and God turns to the foundations of the earth, and he commands the foundations of the earth to hear him in verse two. Verse two, hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. And if Israel will not hear, then God will turn to the mountains, and he'll turn to the foundations of the earth, which are more inanimate than pelicans. And God will be heard. Even if he is to be heard by just mountains and foundations of the earth, the Lord will not go unheard. And God calls his contention, his trouble, his disagreement with Israel. In verse 2, verse 2, he calls it the Lord's controversy, the Lord's controversy. In verse 2, God is saying that this controversy belongs to him. God owns this argument, this disagreement with his own, and he labels it, therefore, in verse 2, the Lord's controversy, the Lord's controversy. You know, Usually in a family, a family doesn't like to hang out as dirty laundry for the neighbors to see. Very typical that when there's a loud argument in a home that all the windows should be shut so the neighbors don't hear the yelling and all that that's going on, because there's just a desire to keep all those disagreements and arguings and controversies inside the walls of the home. Just bend it that way. Don't hang them out for everyone to see because it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to let the neighbors see that there's an arguing in the home and we have to keep up a good image after all in the front of the neighbors, that's what we gotta do. But not God, that's the amazing thing, not God. God lets all his family problems go on full display for the world to see as God says in verse two, the Lord hath a controversy with his people, with his people. God doesn't care if the world sees the arguing and the disagreement and the controversy in his home. He puts it all out on full display. He hides nothing. And now, the humility of God. This is very humiliating for God, but God doesn't care. He's gonna plead with Israel publicly. He'll plead with them before the city of Jerusalem as when Jesus came near to the city of his people, in Luke 19.41, Luke 19.41, when it says, when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. He cried over his people, over the capital, his city. This is the city of the great king. And he said in Matthew 23.37, Matthew 23, 37, "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thee, gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not? Jesus Christ, as God, stopped at nothing in pleading for Israel, even if it meant him going to a cross to hang there naked, completely exposed, transparent to the world, as the only righteous man who was bearing the sins of the world. And he was there dying, as we just sang about. He was faint and bleeding and dying for the sins of the world as the greatest king that ever lived and served his people as the king of the Jews. You know, um, there's so much passion here in God from in Micah 6 that you know, it reminds me of, of Dodge City and Gunsmoke. You know, Dodge City and Gunsmoke had this railroad station that came through. You know, the, 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 the stagecoach came through, but there was also a railroad station there. And, anyway, and, and the trains that would come through, they were all powered by steam engines. And we've all seen those old-time steam engines, you know, locomotives where the steam just builds up and builds up. And, and then finally you have this big, you know, the side of the locomotive and the engine releases it. That's a picture of God. That's a picture of God, the steam of the ache from his dispute, his contention with his people. It reached a point where God couldn't take it any longer and he lets out this, this steam with his cry in verse 3. In verse 3, it's, oh, my people. Those three words, they're so important. The first word is that exhaustive steam where God just says, oh, Oh, that one word God saying, I don't know what to do with you. I'm so frustrated with you. I've tried to go to, to go in in front of you. I've tried to go behind you. I've tried to go alongside of you, and it's all been a failure. I've tried to go before you and lead you, but you don't want to be led. I've tried to go behind you and advise you and guide you, but you don't want to be guided. I've tried to go beside you and instruct you, but you don't want to be instructed. And now all I can do is just let out this huge belch of steam as a sigh of frustration with just one word, oh, I'm totally at a loss for what to do next. And twice in this chapter, the steam locomotive of the engine of God's heart lets out its cry of, oh, my people. Verse three, oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? Verse five, verse five, oh, my people, remember. These two words, my people, come right from the heart of God. And they make such a strong statement. When God took Israel to be his people, it was at Mount Sinai, at Mount Sinai, and God, in essence, married Israel and said to Israel the marriage vows of, I the God of the whole earth do take you Israel to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish for eternity. That was God's words in essence. That was in essence what God told Israel at Mount Sinai. And from that time, God was married to Israel And even though Israel made it to be, for worse, for God, God stuck with Israel, and God told Israel in Jeremiah 3.14, Jeremiah 3.14, "'Turn, O backsliding children,' saith the Lord, "'for I am married unto you.'" Isaiah 54.5, Isaiah 54.5, "'For thy maker is thine husband, "'the Lord of hosts is his name.'" and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. So as a wife, Israel was unfaithful. She was adulteress, and she was unfaithful as could be, and even though Israel was adulterous, God refused to divorce Israel as God said in Jeremiah 3.1, Jeremiah 3.1, they say, if a man put away his wife and go from him and become another man's, Shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, saith the Lord. He, God, was willing to do to the unbelievable. Even though Israel had been so spiritually adulterous, God said, come back, come back to me. And to show Israel how they committed adultery against God, God took one of his choice very choice prophets, Hosea, and told Hosea, go out and marry a prostitute named Gomer who will refuse Hosea to stay faithful to you. But God said, God said through Hosea in Hosea 2.19, Isaiah 2.19, I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment, and in loving kindness, and in mercies, I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. This is what's behind these words, my people, when God says the singular statement that of commitment where God is saying to Israel, I married you, I married to you, Israel, I will be married to you for eternity. Even though, Israel, you go and you get married to others, I will not cast you off. I will wait for you. Even though your lovers will spit you out into the gutter of the street, I'll take you up, I'll clean you up, I'll put you up to be my wife again because that's just who I am. That's God. Deuteronomy 7, 9, Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God. Lamentations 3.23, Lamentations 3.23, great is thy faithfulness. 2 Timothy 2.13, 2 Timothy 2.13, if we believe not yet he abideth faithful. And the fact that God now in this chapter, in Micah 6, Micah 6.2 says, oh my people, shows how God is so faithful to refuse to say You were my people but you're not my people anymore, no. God says in verse two, Oh my people, and he's saying, I won't let you go. I will not let you go. I will do all I can by way of correction, by way of chastening, by way of persuading you. Come to your senses, return to me, and if you don't return to me, it will not be because of me as I will never stop calling you my people because even though there will be times when there's just gonna be a very small, tiny remnant of you that will return to me, I won't destroy you. Because of that very small remnant, because of that very tiny remnant of the Jewish people, I will continue to call you my people. And now God says in verse three, in verse three, he says, oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? testify against me. With those words, God is saying to Israel, as a husband with a broken marriage, I'm not giving up on the marriage. I'm wanting to go to to counseling with you, Israel, as my wife, let's start the counseling session. Now tell me, Israel, what have I done unto you? Tell me, Israel, wherein have I worn you out? Tell me, Israel, testify against me. And when the Lord says that, testify against me in verse three. The Lord is saying, don't give me the silent treatment. Talk, complain, yell, shout, let it out. Stop with this passive aggression of not talking to me because I won't take it any longer. Revelation 3.15, Revelation 3.15, I would thou wert either cold or hot So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. That's what God's saying here in those three words of Micah 6.3. Micah 6.3, testify against me. God's saying Isaiah 41.21, Isaiah 41.21. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. See, with these words in verse 3, God's saying, Revelation 2.4, Revelation 2.4, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. See, with those three words, God's saying, Israel, you call yourself my wife, but the spark's gone. It's all gone. The passion is gone. You serve me with a sterile religious duty about you. You don't sing to me anymore with a voice of joy. You don't pray to me anymore with all your heart. Your prayers sound to me like a boring recitation, like you're reading off a list. You don't serve me with delight. You just do for me your religious duty reluctantly. You don't give your money to me with happiness. You just shell it over with a grudge. In short, you just don't love me anymore. There's no love. And I can't stand it any longer, God is saying. So stand up and get it out. Shout it out, tell me, what have I done unto thee? How have I worn you out? Testify against me, because this way is no way for a marriage to be. And this is the same as when God said to Israel, Isaiah 118, Isaiah 118, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And when God said that in Isaiah 118, when Isaiah 118, when he said, come now and let us reason together, that's God as a husband was saying to Israel, his wife, the same as he's saying here in Micah 6.3, testify against me. Come to the counseling session. Tell me, O my people, what I've done unto thee. Tell me how I've worn you out. Testify against me. Because even though you've committed multiple adulteries, I'm ready to take you back. I'm ready to forgive you. I'll cleanse you. I'll renew you. That's the same as God saying, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. They're not going to heaven is what he said. But, such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Why? Because Revelation 1.5 talks about the kind of love that Jesus Christ has. Revelation 1.5 says Jesus Christ loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Tom Cantor's messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. For other free resources, email us at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. Join our live services on YouTube by searching Friendship with God with Tom Cantor every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time.